From the 26th of February to the 2nd of March 2013, the London School of Economics holds its fifth annual literary festival, featuring talks, readings and panel discussions. To celebrate and support the event, here at the LSE Review of Books, we've asked a selection of LSE academics to read from their favourite books, building on the Academic Inspiration series on our website, lsereviewofbooks.com. In this podcast, we'll hear readings and translations from Arne Westad, Director of LSE Ideas, John Van Rienen, Director of the LSE Centre for Economic Performance, Simon Glendinning, Reader in European Philosophy, and Fatima El Isawi, Research Fellow at POLIS. My name is Arne Westad, and I'm the Director of LSE Ideas, and I will be reading from Sult, Hunger, by Knut Hamsun in Norwegian. Now, Knut Hamsun is an author that's always preoccupied me. He is one of those who write the most beautiful Norwegian that I know of. He is uh, a fascinating figure in terms of having started to deal with the people who came in from the countryside and who settled in the cities in the late 19th century, a, a process that I've been preoccupied with in my work as an historian as well. He's a controversial figure. Um, he sided with the Nazis during the Second World War became a German collaborator and was punished for that after the war was over. I think what's been happening to Hamsun more recently is that a lot of younger people have taken him to their heart in spite of the abhorrence of his politics, simply because he writes beautifully and because he deals with a period in Norwegian history that no one has ever dealt with better than what he does. Det var den tid jag gick omkring och sultade i Kristiania. It was during the time I wandered about and starved in Christiana. Christiana, this singular city from which no man departs without carrying away the traces of his sojourn there. I walking on my quest and heard a clock under me slow six slag. It was already quite light and people began to ferde up and down the steps. Under the door where my room was tapetized with old numbers and morningblades, I could so clearly see a recognition from the director. Och lite vänster därför ett fett bugnande avartisemang från baker Fabian Olsen om nybakt bröd. I was lying awake in my attic and I heard a clock below strike six. It was already broad daylight and people had begun to go up and down the stairs. By the door where the wall of the room was papered with old numbers of the Morgenbladet, I could distinguish clearly a notice from the director of lighthouses and a little to the left of that an inflated advertisement of Fabian Olsen's new baked bread. Strax jag slog in upp började jag gammal vana och tänka efter om jag hade någon glädje för idag. Det har varit lite knappt nu med den sista tiden. Den ena efter den andra mina ändelar var brakt till onkel. Jag var lite nervös och uthållsam. Ett par gånger hade jag också ligget till sängs en dagstid av simmelhet. Någon dag lyckan var god kunde jag driva det till att få fem kronor av ett eller annat blad för en följetong. The instant I opened my eyes, I began, from sheer force of habit, to think if I had anything to rejoice over that day. I had been somewhat hard up lately, and one after the other of my belongings had been taken to my uncle. I had grown nervous and irritable. A few times I had kept my bed for the day with vertigo. Now and then, when luck had favoured me, I had managed to get five shillings for a fuel ton from some newspaper or other. They listened more and more, and I could give me to read over the mangler in the door. Jag kunde ändå sjelden de magre, grinade bokstaver om liksvöp hos Jomfru Andersson till höjer i porten. Det sysselsatte mig en lang stund. Jag hörte klockan slå åtta nedenunder innan jag stod upp och klädde på mig. It grew lighter and lighter, and I took to reading the advertisements near the door. 
I could even make out the grinning lean letters of winding sheets to be had at Miss Anderson's on the right of it. That occupied me for a long while. I heard the clock below strike eight as I got up and put on my clothes. Jeg åpnet vinduet og så ut. Der hvor jeg stod hadde jeg utsikt til en klesnor og en åpen mark. Langt ute lå gruven tilbake av en nedbrent smie, og noen arbeidere var i ferd med å rydde opp. Jeg la meg med albuene ned i vinduet og styret ut i luften. Det blev ganske visst en lys dag. Høsten var kommet. Den fine, svale årstid da allting skifter farve og forbår. I opened the window and looked out. From where I was standing, I had a view of a clothesline and open field. Farther away lay the ruins of a burnout smithy, which some laborers were busy clearing away. I leant with my elbows resting on the window frame and gazed into open space. It promised to be a cool day, autumn, that tender, cool time of the year when all things changed their color and die had come to us. Støyen var allerede begynt å lyde i gatene og lokket meg ut. Dette tomme velse vi skulle vynget opp og ned for hvert skritt jeg tok bortover. Det var som en gissen, uhyggelig likkiste. Det var ikke ordentlig lås for døren og ingen oven i rommet. Jeg pleide å ligge på mine strømper om natten for å få dem litt tørre til om morgenen. Det eneste jeg hadde å fornøye meg med var en liten rød gyngestol som jeg satt i om kvelden og døset og tenkte på mange håndet ting. Når det blåste hardt og dørene nedenunder sto åpne, lørde alle slags underlige vin opp gjennom gulvet og inn fra veggene. Og månbladet nede ved døren fikk revner så lange som en hånd. The ever-increasing noise in the streets lured me out. The bare room, the floor of which rocked up and down with every step I took across it, seemed like a gasping, sinister coffin. There was no proper fastening to the door either, and no stove. I used to lie on my socks at night to dry them a little by the morning. The only thing I had to divert myself with was a little red rocking chair, in which I used to sit in the evenings and doze and muse on all manner of things. When it blew hard and the door below stood open, all kinds of eerie sounds moaned up through the floor and from out the walls, and the Morgan bladder near the door was rent in strips of span long. Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historic facts appear twice. He forgot to add... The first time as tragedy, the second as farce. Casidier for Danton, Louis Blanc for Robespierre, the Montagne of 1848 to 1851, the Montagne of 1793 to 1795, the nephew for the uncle, and the same caricature occurs in the circumstance of the second edition of the 18th Brumaire. My name is John Van Rienen, I'm the director for the Centre of Economic Performance, and I'm reading from the introduction to the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte by Karl Marx. Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And just as they seem to be occupied with revolutionising themselves and things, creating something that did not exist before, precisely in such epochs of revolution and crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service, borrowing from them names, battle slogans and costumes, in order to present this new scene in world history in time-honoured disguise and borrowed language. Thus Luther put on the mask of the Apostle Paul, the revolution of 1789 to 1840, draped itself alternatively in the guise of the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, and the revolution of 1848 had nothing better to do than to parody, now 1789, 
now the revolutionary tradition of 1793 to 95. In like manner, the beginner who has learned a new language always translates it back into his mother tongue, but he assimilates the spirit of the new language and expresses himself freely in it only when he moves in it without recalling the old and when he forgets his native tongue. My name is Fatima Isawi. I'm a research fellow with Polis and I'm reading from The Messenger with her hair Long to the Springs by the Lebanese poet Unsi Al Hajj. I swear to fade out for the sake of your happiness like stars at day. I swear to house my tears in your hand. I swear to be the distance between I love you and I love you. I swear to hurl my body for eternity to the lines of your discontent. I swear to be your cage's open door faithful to night's promises. I swear that my waiting room will be jealousy, my entering it, obedience, my staying there, complete extinction. I swear to become prey for your shadow. I swear to long forever to be a book open on your lap. I swear to be the world's rupture between you and be in its solitude. I swear to call out for you so happiness will answer the call. I swear to harbor my country and my love for you and the world in my country. I swear to love you without knowing how much. Before the law stands a doorkeeper. To this doorkeeper there comes a countryman and prays for admittance to the law. But the doorkeeper says that he cannot grant admittance at the moment. The man thinks it over and then asks if he'll be allowed in later. It is possible, says the doorkeeper, but not at the moment. I'm Simon Glendinning and I'm the reader in European philosophy at the European Institute. I'll be reading from a short story by Kafka called Before the Law. One of the things that this text says better than many others that I know is that it seems all the way through it to say this is literature. Since the gate stands open, as usual, and the doorkeeper steps to one side, the man stoops to peer through the gateway into the interior. Observing that, the doorkeeper laughs and says, if you're so drawn to it, just try to go in, despite my veto. But take note, I am powerful, and I am only the least of the doorkeeper's from hall to hall there is one doorkeeper after another, each more powerful than the last. The third doorkeeper is already so terrible that even I cannot bear to look at him. 
These are difficulties the countryman has not expected. The law, he thinks, should surely be accessible at all times and to everyone. But as he now takes a closer look at the doorkeeper in his fur coat, with his big sharp nose and long thin black tartar beard, he decides that it's better to wait until he gets permission to enter. The doorkeeper gives him a stool and lets him sit down at one side of the door, and there he sits for days and years. He makes many attempts to be admitted and wearies the doorkeeper by his importunity. The doorkeeper frequently has little interviews with him, asking him questions about his home and many other things. But the questions are put indifferently, as great lords put them, and always finish with the statement that he cannot be let in yet. The man, who has furnished himself with many things for his journey, sacrifices all he has, however valuable, to bribe the doorkeeper. That official accepts everything, but always with the remark, I'm only taking it to keep you from thinking you have omitted anything. During these many years, the man fixes his attention almost continuously on the doorkeeper. He forgets the other doorkeepers, and this first one seems to him the sole obstacle preventing access to the law. He curses his bad luck in his early years boldly and loudly. Later, as he grows old, he only grumbles to himself. He becomes childish, and since in his years-long contemplation of the doorkeeper he has come to know even the fleas in his fur collar, he begs the fleas as well to help him and to change the doorkeeper's mind. At length, his eyesight begins to fail, and he does not know whether the world is really growing darker or whether his eyes are only deceiving him. Yet in his darkness, he is now aware of a radiance that streams inextinguishably from the gateway of the law. Now he has not very long to live. Before he dies, all his experiences in these long years gather themselves in his head to one point, a question he has not yet asked the doorkeeper. He waves him nearer since he can no longer raise his stiffening body. The doorkeeper has to bend low towards him for the difference in height between them has altered much to the countryman's disadvantage. What do you want to know now? asked the doorkeeper. You're insatiable. Everyone strives to reach the law, says the man. So how does it happen that for all these years, no one but myself has ever begged for admittance? The doorkeeper recognises that the man has reached his end, and to let his failing senses catch the words roars in his ear. No one else could ever be admitted here since this gate was made only for you. I am now going to shut it. To find out more about the LSE Literary Festival, go to lse.ac.uk slash space for thought. Podcasts of many events will be available soon. To read our academic inspiration essays and to hear more podcasts and interviews, visit lsereviewofbooks.com. You can also find a list of music used in this podcast on our website. I'm Amy Mollett. Thanks for listening.